Good morning. We are going to be reading from God's Word in the book of Titus. What a privilege uh, it is to open the Word of God and to read. If you want to follow along, we're in Titus chapter number 1, and we'll read verses 5 through 9. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. May God's word be blessed. Amen. You can be seated. I, uh, I told a number of you walking in, I, I woke up with the world's worst crick in my neck. And so I'm going to preach like this today. I hope it's not distracting, but I just, if I didn't acknowledge it and you saw me doing this, you'd be like, what is wrong with him? No, I'm not dancing the robot. I'm just unable to turn my head. So maybe on the camera that doesn't feel as weird as it feels in the room, but it feels strange to me. So let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. Uh, thank you for the power it has in our lives. God, we thank you for the way you call us uh, out of darkness and into marvelous light. God, as your uh, spirit is at work in us, even now as we have sung and heard your word, may that same spirit uh, quicken our hearts and draw us to you and transform us and form us into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. In his name I pray. Amen. When you think of a great leader, what are some of the, the qualities or characteristics that you think of when it comes to be somebody being a really good leader? Maybe you're thinking of a, a leader of an organization, a coach of a team, uh, some kind of business leader, that kind of thing. Somebody that's a really effective leader. I wonder what some of the characteristics you first think of and associate with that kind of person. Maybe one of the first things you think of is their, their ability to communicate. You know, somebody that can, can, can really motivate and is passionate and enthusiastic in the way that they use their words. People like them and they can draw a crowd. They can, they can get people following and, and going in the right direction with the way that they lead. They're likable. Uh, maybe this person is good at managing. You know, they're good. They have good people skills and they're good, good with directing and, and guiding people. Maybe uh, an important characteristic you think of is their, their competency, no, knowing the, the field they're in, knowing it well, and generally being smart and, 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 and intelligent, able to do uh, different things in their field. Uh, a good leader's got to be uh, tough under pressure, right? They got to be able to make good decisions in the tight moment when things are challenging. They got to be willing to, to do, the, do uh, the difficult things. Uh, a good leader's got to have a good vision and direction. Got to see this is, this is where we need to go, and this is how we're going to get there, and they they get people motivated in all those right directions, right? Those are some of the characteristics you would think of, some of the qualities in an effective leader. But there is one quality that 
the Bible, and I would say, is more important than any of those qualities I've already mentioned. It, it is, if a leader does not have this quality, then all the other qualities, all the other skills, all the other competencies will be, will be useless in the end. Uh, a leader could be the smartest, most passionate visionary with a, a remarkable skill for motivation. Uh, a, a leader could have all the best knowledge of a certain area and could be generous and compassionate and loving and so many good things, but if they don't have this, they'll never make it. At least they won't make it for very long. Now, I assume that this quality was unique to the Bible, and maybe that is just uh, the world I live in is the Bible world, so I thought this was you know, going to be unique to Bible stuff. But I actually started looking around online just at kind of secular literature about being a good leader. And sure enough, this same quality makes it in the top of some of those non-Christian sources, some of those non-Christian places. So it's good and encouraging to me that other people have noticed what the Bible notices. Because a leader, to be any leader in anything and everything, to be a good leader, the number one, top, most important uh, quality is to be a person of character, a person of integrity. Uh, More than anything else, if a person does not have character, they will not be able to be a good leader. And I thought this was just a Bible thing. It's right here in Titus chapter 1. But here's some secular websites. I mean, they may, maybe they're Christians, but they, nothing on their website said anything about being a Christian. Here's what some of them said. One site said, integrity is a core quality that every leader must possess. You cannot run any business successfully if you lack integrity. The first value every executive agrees on is integrity. Wow. One website put it kind of in the negative side. When people see evidence that leaders lack integrity, that can be nearly impossible to recover from. Trust lost is difficult to get back. One more leadership consultant said, in every strategic planning session that I have been in for large and small corporations, the first value that all gathered executives agreed upon for their company is integrity. They all agree on the importance of complete honesty in everything they do, both internally and externally. Man, I was surprised, pleasantly surprised, but I was surprised to find non-Christians saying that kind of thing about what makes a good leader. It's good and encouraging that Christian truth, it, it goes out beyond just our walls. But when we come to the Bible today asking about biblical leadership, we affirm this above everything else, that character matters. Character matters in leadership. Now, I recognize that maybe not everybody in the room pictures themselves as a leader. Maybe you don't think of yourself as a leader because you're not the, the, the head manager where you work or, or there's somebody that you report to, and so you, you picture yourself maybe more as a follower. But I would argue everybody, or at least almost everybody in the room, has somebody looking up to you, don't you? Now, if you're a parent, of course, that's easy. There's at least two little eyes you know, looking up to you. But I would argue even for, for non-parents or parents whose kids are grown, you've got coworkers, you've got friends, you've got other people that are watching how you live. And whether you know it or not, you are influencing them. You're making an impact on their life, which makes you a leader. So biblical leadership matters to you, even if your your job or the way you spend most of your time doesn't look like a primary place of leadership. But as Dan read that passage, maybe you were thinking, elder, he's talking about pastors. Why, Why does the rest of us, I mean, shouldn't this just be like a devotion 
for the five elders of the church. Why, why does the rest of the church need to hear a, a passage and a sermon about biblical eldership and about leadership in the Bible? Well, that's a, that's a really good question. One I think worth answering. This is, in your, this is not your outline, but I, I think defending preaching this passage is important, so much so that I got you four reasons why, okay? I got four reasons why this is important. This, this is the first and most important reason, and this, this took uh, you know, lots of thinking. Ready for this? This is the most important reason. It's in the Bible. It's in the Bible. We believe and we affirm that all Scripture is profitable, every single bit of it. My, my commitment to you is that I don't just sit in my office and come up with interesting things to share with you. I preach a book. I am bound to a book. And so the preaching ministry of this church, the regular habit and practice is to be walking through portions or, or entire books as we're able to do with Titus. Now there is some pastoral wisdom in, in having to select the book, but then once we, we pick it, we don't skip around, right? We don't just pick my favorites or the things that I think are most interesting or most go along with current events because that may work a little bit here and there and, and should. We should address things occasionally. But, but the regular steady diet of our ministry is that we just walk through the Bible as it's given to us. And the way the Bible was given to us was in 66 books. And so I'm just, I'm just going to preach the next passage. That's what we do. We walk through it, okay? So there's the first reason. But beyond that, there's, there's more too. I, I think for us as elders, as leaders that are here, we, we want to make sure, hey, you're seeing the same things we're seeing so that we, we are uh, transparent, we are accountable to you for these, for these things, and we're, we're asking for your prayers, right? Like if this is what the Bible, we want, we want to make sure that you see what we see so you could say, okay, this is what we expect of our leaders, this is how they should be acting, and this is the kind of things that we are praying for our leaders and the, the, and the way that they live, that they would live up to this. And with that, along with that, maybe a third reason would be to correct false assumptions. Whether or not you've been around the church much, there, there's all kinds of ideas that come up about, hey, this is how pastors should act. This is what an elder should do. These are the kind of things that should be the, the main focus of their, of their time and their qualifications. So we'll make sure that we, we're sticking to the biblical reason. But the fourth reason may be the most directly applicable to you. And that's that leaders, you know what they do? <laughs> they lead people. And so whatever the qualifications are, yes, there are some unique things that a, that a, that a leader does that not everybody does. You, you're sitting there. I'm standing here. I know that's different. But, but we as leaders lead people. And so we're supposed to live in such a way that you are following your leaders. And so the things that are commanded of leaders then are the same things, the same mature Christian beliefs and structures and lives that everybody is meant to follow. So for at least those four reasons, this passage is worth our attention. This section that we begin this morning gives us a little bit of the background to this letter. Last week we started with just the introduction to Titus, just four verses that kind of walk through the opening and the purpose of this letter. But now as this, this section goes on, starting in verse 5, we, we understand why Paul is writing to Titus. So the Apostle Paul, you may know from uh, many of the other books in the New Testament that he wrote, one of the main figures in the book of Acts. <clears throat> and as he uh, went on his journeys to spread the gospel, missionary journeys throughout the, the Mediterranean region, the, the Roman Empire, you, you'll read in Acts of many people that came along with him. You know, the Timothys and the Titus and, and Priscilla and Aquila and all these people that came along in different times and places. And we don't have the, the story in Acts, but Crete apparently was one of the places that he stopped to preach. 
And so the way his regular practice would go is he would come to an area, and so he came to Crete. Crete's a little island off the coast of Greece in the Mediterranean Sea. You can see it you know, if you Google that, where Crete is. It's still got the same name today. And so they had come to this island and begun preaching the gospel in various towns. And as Christians, as people come to know the Lord, as they become Christians, the, the regular practice, and this is still the strategy for missions today, is preach the gospel, evangelize. As Christians come, you gather them in communities, and that group of believers forms a local church. Now, for whatever reason, Paul had to go on, and he continued in his missionary journey, but he left Titus behind to continue in the work of ministry. Titus wouldn't be there forever, but his job was to appoint leaders. It says to put everything into order. Uh, it says in verse 5, This is why I left you in Crete, so you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So the, the clear understanding then here is about the, the foundational structure for a church. A church starts with the preaching of the gospel. The, the, the gospel message goes forth. And as people come to know Him, they become Christians. They put their faith in Him and they follow Him. They gather together as a community. And then the way that community is led is they're led by elders. So a biblical local church is led by elders. I want you to see that basic fundamental truth in the structure of a church as we understand what it means to be a church family. Paul and Titus were temporary missionaries, temporary evangelists. They came and they gathered up leaders so that this group of qualified men would serve to lead in the local church. Our world has so many different models and structures for leadership. And for all those different types of groups, those models you know, seem to be working great. Those are good things. It's good for organizations to have a CEO. It's good for a team to have a coach. Governments can be monarchies or democracies or representative democracies. Uh, nonprofit organizations are frequently led by some kind of board of directors. Those, those seem to work out. That's fine. You know, those are good. But when it comes to the Bible, when it comes to local churches, we have a command in Scripture about our leadership. And our leadership is that we are led by elders. That is more than one. It does not say appoint an elder in every town. There's not just one. There's a team. And so that's what we have here. It's a team of five of us at Infinity Church that make up the elders. Uh, also, it does not say elect an elder. It says appoint. Again, for different organizations like our democracy, it seems to be wise to have elections. But here in the church, he's saying it is unwise to have uh, elders just be the winners of a popularity contest. There is, there's something, there's a spiritual dimension that gives wisdom here to having spiritually mature people like Titus, who is elder qualified, to be, go and appoint other elders. And so that's the pattern that we fall, follow. Uh, last fall, we appointed Brad Garrison as the newest elder uh, in this church. And as we did, we spent time in 1 Peter 5, which talks about uh, the role of a shepherd. And so we see throughout the New Testament, uh, this role has multiple names, elder, pastor, shepherd, overseer, all used to describe this, this role. Uh, so it's not the only passage for Timothy, you know, chapter, I mean, Titus chapter 1, not the only one. 1 Timothy 3, uh, Acts, multiple places like Acts 14 there are pointed, uh, Philippians 1, uh, uh, many other places. And interestingly, the Bible does not get overly prescriptive or, or descriptive of all the, the ins and outs of the structure uh, of a local church. You won't find any passages uh, about uh, the way that you should structure, you know, having youth leaders and children's teachers and making sure you got, you know, only the, the third to fifth graders together in a class because of their reading level. Like, you know, that, that's not in the Bible, right? 
The, the Bible is leaving lots of freedom in every generation, in every culture. You've got to figure out what does it look like to do ministry well. So there's not a lot of details. But this one, this, this basic overarching leadership structure is clear in the Bible. That a biblical local church is led by elders. And so we hold that to be non-negotiable. Uh, for, for Paul, as he writes to Titus, that's his responsibility. Get that structure, just simple structure, a group of elders leading every local church. That's his job. So then the question is, who does he appoint? Who is supposed to fulfill that role? What, what's he looking for? What, is he, what qualifications, what things come to mind? What is he, when he's looking for good leaders in the local churches that just started, what is he supposed to look for? Well, that brings us back to where we started. So many, uh, you know, I, I would think, I would have thought so many secular forms of leadership disagreed with this, but apparently many of them do agree. And so character matters most, both for leaders and for those they lead. Character is more important than a leader's vision, communication, people's skills, management, competency, anything else. Character matters most. To paraphrase, you know, 1 Corinthians 13, if a leader has everything else, draws massive crowds, has an enormous following, seems to move mountains, but has not character, they have nothing. They have nothing. Over and over again, we hear uh, of moral failures in one way or another, and it is it's just tragic and heart-wrenching and, and difficult. Whether it be pastors or politicians or co coaches or athletes or celebrities, it seems over and over again, we see moral failures all around. And it usually happens when a person's influence extends beyond what their character can support. And I, I, was, I was going back through this. I remembered a talk I heard at a conference 11 years ago when I was uh, in college. It was in 2010. It was a Christian conference. And so I went back and found that same, that same message. And it was about our character. And um, this pastor was talking about, he was pointing out how so many times you know, we, we have, whether it be talents or education or skills or, or opportunities, we have the chance to advance in this world. We, we can build a platform and we can get a following and we can go, go, go. But if that runs ahead of our character, then we're, we're likely to fall off. We're likely, likely to stumble. Uh, that talk was in January of 2010. And I, I don't remember, you know, the, the, the news from that year. I, I'm sure I could have Googled it to figure it out. But uh, he, he was telling this story about how, yeah, he's like, yeah, remember how we've seen all these news uh, stories in the last 12 months about, you know, all these different people that have, that have fought, had moral failures, right? And that was 2010. We, we don't have to go back and Google what it was because that continues to happen. We see this over and over again. And as Pastor pointed out, with, that with all those, especially with the rich and famous, we say, what? How, how could you possibly fall into that? You know, if you had all that money, why would you, you know, embezzle more? If you had all this opportunity, all the wealth, all this, why, why would you not guard yourself carefully? You're going to lose it all. You think there's just no way that if I was there, I would make that decision. And I'm, I'm really careful not to say that because I just know by, it's only by grace that any of us are still standing. But the Bible wants to tell, call us and teach us to make sure that we, we understand what's the most important characteristic of a good leader. It is our character. It's our integrity. Because if we lose that, we lose everything. When someone fails morally, they have decided that this, this thing that they're, they're pursuing is worth giving up their integrity. So they're saying, as long as I have these other qualities, I'll still be 
a good leader. I can give up my integrity. I can give up my character as long as I'm still a good communicator, as long as I'm still a visionary, as long as I do this, that, and the other. I can give up my character and I can still be a leader. But it never works that way, at least not for very long. Whatever else you may be good at, gifted in, talented with, experienced in, if we don't have character, our leadership can come crashing down. The way that pastor at the conference phrased it 11 years ago was it's always a mistake to decide what you're going to do before you decide who you're going to be. It's always a mistake to decide what you're going to do before you decide who you're going to be. Who, who are you? That's a more important question than what you do. You may have a job, you may have a responsibility, you may have tasks, but if you don't answer the question, who am I, first and foremost, then everything else can come crashing down. Character matters most, both for leaders and for those they leave. Don Carson comments about Titus 1 and a, a similar passage in 1 Timothy 3. He says uh, about this, tr- this character list, he says, it is remarkable for being unremarkable. And the point he's making here is that what, what qualifies a good leader are the same things that should qualify any mature Christian. This, this is a list that is not some elite status. There's nothing here about, uh, you know, first century world, there was no seminary. There were no, you know, educational institutions. There was no degrees. This is, th- those things are not what makes somebody a competent leader. They can help. But what makes them, foundationally, what makes them a foundational, uh, what foundationally makes them a good leader is their character. So how does Paul actually describe this, this character? The first thing he says, and it's kind of a way of summarizing everything else about their character, is that a godly leader is called to be above reproach. Above reproach. That's what it shows or says for us. Uh, in, it says it two times, once in verse 6 and in verse 7. Your translation may say blameless. And it's not to say that Christians are perfect. So that's certainly not the case, right? There's no, there's no pastor uh, apart from the good shepherd himself who has ever been perfect. But it means that there's not, there's not skeletons hanging around in our closet. Or at least if there were in our past, we've been honest and we've repented and we've turned away from that. It's not about, it's that uh, to be a godly Christian leader, we don't have, we, we can't have secrets in our lives. We can't have corners that we say, okay, you, you can't know about this portion of my life. To be above, above reproach, that means we can't reasonably be charged with a serious moral offense. Yes, people can make whatever accusation they want, but, but our character should be such a way that it's very quick and clear that this, this accusation doesn't stick. They cannot be uh, accused. A mature, a mature Christian is someone who doesn't dance around the lines to kind of co- toe up to the line between right and wrong, between good and bad. A, a mature Christian is somebody who flees that line to leave, leave no shadow of doubt. We don't want to be anywhere close to living in such a way that there's, there's a question mark about our character. Not because we're some holier-than-thou person, but because we recognize the danger that if we lose our character, we lose everything else. We, we have no platform, no ability to speak if our character is a constant question. We know that character matters most. A godly character is one that's above reproach. You think of the, the Old Testament story of Daniel. Maybe you know his story. He was a man who was above reproach. Of course, the most famous account in Daniel is the story of Daniel and the, in the lion's den. And the reason he got thrown in the lion's den is because he was, although he was a foreigner who had been uh, brought into Babylon, he was rising in the ranks. He was becoming a greater and greater leader. And the people of the area, the king, was saying, you're, you're going to be in charge of it all. 
And the other leaders around him didn't like that. They were jealous of Daniel. And so they did what happens to every leader who gets raised up. They go searching for dirt on Daniel, right? They're like, surely there's something about that. And I had to just picture every, you know, Senate confirmation hearing of every Supreme Court justice and everybody else, you know, like they're going to dig for dirt. And that's what they did for Daniel. They dug and dug and dug. And you know what happened? They found nothing. This is what it says in verse, uh, this is Daniel chapter 6. It says, Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall find no ground for complaint against Daniel unless, and I love this, unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. What the officials had to do is they had to trick the king into making a new law that they knew Daniel would break. And you remember what that law was? Don't pray. <laughs> the only thing they could convict Daniel of was praying too much. Man, isn't that a great thing to be guilty of? That's a great thing to be guilty of. That's a man. Daniel wasn't perfect. Daniel sinned. But when they went searching for dirt, they couldn't find it. He just prayed too much. That's the only thing they could find. As, as an elder, as an overseer, pastor, we, we are called to be blameless. Not perfect, but living in a way that's above reproach. Verse 7 recalls this person, an overseer. And then it calls us a steward. A steward in the ancient world was not an owner. It was like a household manager. So whatever the, the people or the business of the house was, the steward was the one that just saw to it that everything went according to plan. He wasn't the owner of it. He was stewarding it that belonged to somebody else. And so an elder, shepherd, pastor, that's what we're called to do. We're not the owners of the church. We are the ones who steward God's church and lead it in a way accordingly. Now notice how Paul helps Titus know where to look when it comes to looking to our character, to looking for godly leaders. He says in verse 6, If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife. So godly character, the very first way he begins to describe that is that it starts at home. Godly character starts at home. The primary testing ground for our character is our families. It's not the way we lead in the church first. That is the, the first test of our leadership. It's the way we lead at home. Leading in the church is leading God's family. And so he calls us first to look at the way we lead our personal families before we lead the bigger church family. So the, the word, the phrase translated husband of one wife is literally a, a one woman man. And I like that being a one-woman man. And you want to talk about the most countercultural description of a person in the 21st century, that's about as close as it gets to being as radical uh, of a moral standard, being a one-woman man. That means if a man is married, his uh, mind, heart, body is fully committed to one woman and one alone. There are no others. There's no competition. There's no uh, race every week or, or some kind of uh, competition that they're fighting about. Who's, no, there's just one. There's just one woman. If he is single, a man that is a one-woman man is a man that is living in such a way that is preserving himself and preparing himself to be devoted to just one woman. So he's preparing his hearts and his habits to be fully committed to one person for a lifetime. I, I've heard teenagers um, different times talk about dating and their life. And man, that's like, chaotic world, right? Teenage dating. 
But, but there's this idea that, hey, I'm, I'm going to date uh, a lot of different people to begin to prepare for marriage. And I have told teenagers that going from relationship to relationship, bouncing from one to the other, is not preparing for marriage. That's preparing for divorce. We, we, we have this idea that we're just going to test a bunch of things out before... No, no, jumping from one to the other just prepares our heart to say, when I'm not content, I move on. And that is a dangerous thing to be doing to our hearts. Our, our world has lowered the bar for, for, for sexual purity. We've just excused sexual immorality, whether it be sex outside of marriage or pornography, and just said, hey, that's what the way today's world is. We'll just, we'll just get past it. And we as Christians, if we we're going to be mature Christians, we've got to say no. That is the way of the world and is not the way of following Christ. This isn't just for leaders. This is for everybody to seek out. Because everybody who's had a, a, any kind of history of sexual immorality, a checkered past when it comes to that, will tell you that it, it doesn't actually satisfy. It just leaves you with a more difficult time of being intimate and faithful to a spouse. One pastor wrote that, that the, from between the media and everything else, we have been conditioned in the 21st century and we've conditioned the male to approach a woman as a consumer of many instead of a protector and servant of one. The model teaches our men to selfishly compromise and take rather than to passionately cultivate and guard fidelity to one woman. Elders, leaders, men, we, if we're going to be seeking Christian maturity, it means that we're seeking to be a one-woman man. And the same goes the other way. Women who are seeking to be Christians who are mature are seeking to be one men, one man, woman, women. You know, you got know what I'm trying to say. <laughs> our leadership extends, it, it starts at home and extends beyond just our marriage into our children. Verse 6 continues, and his children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now the word translated believers, if you have an ESV like I do, it's got a little a uh, little number below it, above it, and a little note at the bottom. This word could also be translated as faithful. And in fact, the ESV more often translate this original word as faithful. Uh, and I think that's probably a little bit better because we as people don't have the power to force anybody to believe anything, right? So the, the picture here is about how are we leading our children at home? If they are still in our home, they should be the kind of people who are coming to know the Bible, coming to know the Lord, and generally speaking, if, you, if they're in a Christian home, they will learn to follow Jesus. But we can't ultimately be responsible if after our kids leave our home, they, leave our home, they also turn their backs on the Lord. So it's not that it's not some kind of you know, legalistic command here. But the idea is, as a dad, are you teaching, people about, teaching your children about Jesus? Because if we're not teaching our children about Jesus, then we shouldn't be going out and trying to teach others in place of teaching our children. Do them both. Do them both. Beyond that, Paul lists a handful of characteristics that could disqualify somebody. This is kind of the, the negative side of, of somebody who's not qualified to be a leader. And these, man, these are so common. Let them get our attention. Verse 7 says, must not be arrogant. Pride disqualifies a leader. If a man is not known for being humble, cannot be an elder. Not quick-tempered. Man, what do, we, what do we like under stressful situations? Do we lose our cool? Do words begin to fly? So it's not a drunkard. We can't lead others if we're still battling an addiction. Not violent. No, so no abuse of any kind, verbal, physical, emotional. Not greedy for gain. Again, we're not stewards, which I don't know who goes into ministry to try to get wealthy anyway. 
But the idea is that if you're, if you're trying to just gain something materially for ministry, then you're, you've completely missed the mark. Elders and all mature Christians are called to generosity, not greed. So the flip side of that, that negative list is the positive list, that godly character must contain certain things. Verse 8 starts with being hospitable. We should have an open-door policy in our home, that our, our phone number is freely given out. Please call. You know, let, we want to help you. Uh, we want to have people in our homes who will be welcoming and have a generous spirit. We're supposed to be a lover of good, hate evil, love good. Uh, that connects then to being self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Again, the picture here is not of somebody who's got it all figured out and is perfect in every way, but generally as they have progressed in their faith, are they mature? Are their lives beginning to mirror Christ more often than not? Now, I said at the beginning that I was surprised to see that some secular sources would point to some of these same things. They would say some of these same things about what makes a good leader. But here's the major difference between those things and the Bible. Our motivation. Our motivation. Because I don't know what the secular mindset and motivation is. Maybe you make more profit by being honest because you keep clients longer. I don't know. That's not my world. I'll just tell you what the Bible gives as the motivation. What Paul's laying out here for us is a pattern of the gospel. The pattern of the gospel is that it's always first about who you are before it's about what you do. So let me unpack that for you. For you, before we came to know Jesus, you know who we were? Our primary identity? We were sinners. We were sinners. And Christ, what matters most is who He is. He is a Savior. He is one who loves sinners. So because of who Christ is and because of what He did on the cross, He can change who we are. So now for everybody who believes in Him, our primary identity is not sinner, but we are now a child of God. What matters most is who you are. And that translates into action, but it starts with our identity. Because of what Christ did, it changes then who we are and what we do. The flow is always out of who we are into our actions. So that means, so that's why anyone who, anybody who puts their faith in Jesus can become a mature Christian. Listen, if you were listening to this list closely, you were like, whoop, <clears throat> that one, yep, oh, maybe that one too, yikes, because I certainly did. If you're, if you're taking this list seriously, you're saying, yeah, I, I got some work to do, because we all do, we all do. The picture here is not somebody who is perfect, it's somebody who's forgiven. It's somebody who, yes, we may have a past, but by the grace of God and by the power of God, our past can stay in the past and not continue into the future. Listen, if you felt the weight of this kind of list and thought, man, there's just, if you knew my past, Pastor, you, you would just not even try. <laughs> Listen, we've all been there. We have all been there. Being a Christian is not about having it all figured out. It's that we know the one who has figured it all out. And we trust him to forgive us and to transform us. That's the pattern of the gospel. Now who I am in Christ, a child of God, is different. And He is transforming my character to more closely imitate Him. As Christians, that will not be easy. And so as leaders, there is one area of competency that we're called to. This, almost this entire passage is all about our character. But the very last verse is about something we've got to be able to do. And that is leaders lead best by holding firm to the word of God. God. Verse 9, he, speaking of an elder, 
must, be, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. There is one skill that an elder must have, and that's that he must stay as close to this as possible. Uh, we, my job is to stay right here, right here. I got to hold firm to this because I got no other authority, no other power. I cannot change your life. I can't change my life, but God can. We're called to hold fast to this, gripped to it so that no matter what, no matter the storm, no matter the challenge, no matter the struggle, we never leave this book because we know this is the way that we are transformed. The one skill required is not that we are uh, incredible teachers, that we have it all figured out. We just, we just got to be able to communicate. Like, that's a low bar. Like, I just got to tell you what it says, you know. I'm holding fast to it and telling you what it says and know it well enough to know what's right and what's wrong, what's good doctrine and what's false. We got to be able to instruct in what's right, sound doctrine, and to rebuke those who contradict it. We got to be able to hear teaching, to hear somebody say something and say, does that line up with the Bible? If yes, then we affirm it. If no, we rebuke it. That's the only thing we got to be able to be good at. <laughs> and that's what we strive to do, to hold so close to this that we keep our church focused on God Himself. Listen, as elders, I am humbled. And man, I tell you, coming to have to study a passage like this for a whole week again reminds me of just how dependent I am upon the grace of God. All of us are. But as we walk together in the Christian faith, seeking to be godly leaders, mature Christians, we hold each other accountable. We help encourage and spur one another on to love and good deeds because the same power who raised Christ from the dead is in us, has given us His Word, and transforms our lives. So man, I, I want to be this kind of leader, and I want you to be these kinds of leaders, so that together we see Christ and we see His power as His gospel advances to the ends of the earth. And the only way that will ever happen is if we put our character at the top of the list and say, I will follow Christ as His child and live like it.